Amen. If you have a Bible, take it out. Find the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. This year we're reading through the New Testament together. Uh, We've provided a reading schedule for you, and when you come to church on Sundays, we're selecting a passage that you have read in the previous week to talk about on Sunday morning. Several weeks ago, I mapped out most of the year for our Sunday morning passages so that the youth and the college Bible study on Wednesday night wouldn't get on top of what I was preaching on Sunday. We wouldn't end up preaching the same passage. So I gave that list to Jason and Jake, and I said, do not touch these passages on Wednesday nights. Then we got going in January, and I made the mistake of not referencing my own list as I planned for Wednesday nights. And a couple of Wednesday nights ago, we talked about the rich young ruler, and that was the passage we were supposed to look at this morning, the Gospel of Mark, and we were going to look at chapter 10, uh, the story of the rich young ruler, and we're not going to do that because I've already preached that sermon on a Wednesday night, and so instead we're going to look at Mark chapter 8. So there are notes in the bulletin if you want to follow along this morning. I'm going to break a rule of preaching, and I'm just going to say to you up front that the passage we're looking at this morning is not the most exciting story in the Bible. I don't mean to say that it's an unimportant passage, but it's just not the most exciting, thrilling, riveting story that you'll read in the Old Testament or the New Testament. There are no raging demoniacs. We're going to talk about miracles this morning, but in this story there are not any actual miracles. There are no dead people that come back to life. The story amounts to 13 men in a boat talking about bread. It's riveting. So exciting. It is relevant for the day and the time in which we live in the year 2022. So let's start with just a little bit of context as we build up to Mark chapter 8, 11 to 21. If you go back, if you rewind to Mark chapter 6, you will find the story of Jesus feeding a Jewish crowd of 5,000 men, and he did it with five loaves of bread and two fish. These loaves of bread were not big, huge French loaves that you get at the bakery at Market Street. They were basically small crackers. They were not big, uh, wide-mouthed bass that you would pull out of the lake as some sort of record catch. They were more like sardines. It was a paltry lunch, and Jesus fed this huge crowd, and it was an amazing miracle. It's the only miracle that Jesus performed in his ministry that's recorded in all four Gospels. And it makes sense that it's recorded in all four Gospels because it is the most public miracle that Jesus ever performed, 5,000 largely Jewish men present when this happened. When you add in women and children, you're looking at a crowd of somewhere between 10 and 15,000 people that ate this meal. And at the end of it, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftover food. This happened more than likely on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. So if you have maps in the back of your Bible, you can reference those maps and you can find the Sea of Galilee somewhere on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now that's Mark 6. Fast forward a couple of chapters to Mark chapter 8, verse 1 to 10. There's a very similar story. This time Jesus feeds a crowd of 4,000, probably mostly Gentile men, and he does it with seven loaves and we're told a few fish. It's only recorded in Mark and in Matthew. Luke doesn't mention it, 
John doesn't mention it. It likely happened in a Gentile region known as the Decapolis. And again, when you read these two accounts and you say there was 4,000 present, that was 4,000 men. You add the women and children, you're looking at eight to 12,000-ish, give or take. This is a massive crowd of people that Jesus feeds with the small lunch. Now, I want to just reference one thing that has always bothered me when I read these two stories. It's always bothered me that when this crowd of 4,000 people gathered and Jesus asked the disciples to feed them or to provide food for them, they basically act like they have no idea in the world how that could happen. And I've, I've found myself thinking, it's just two chapters earlier. There was 5,000 and Andrew brought the boy with the, the small lunch and Jesus used it and he, he fed the crowd. And then you fast forward just a few weeks probably and there's another crowd and Jesus says, why don't you feed these people? And they just sort of look at each other and everyone says, not I, not I, not I. We don't know what to do. There's no food out here. And I've always wondered, why didn't somebody just speak up and say, hey, what about what you did last time? I think there are two possible solutions. One possible solution is that the disciples were dense. And a lot of you have talked to me as you've read through the New Testament. You've now made it through all of Matthew. You've made it through a large portion of Mark. And you've talked about what you've been reading. And you've said, you know what? The disciples are really dumb. They don't understand what's going on. They seem completely clueless. The demons know more than they do. They're just completely at a loss for what's happening. Maybe that's the explanation. Maybe we'd give them the benefit of the doubt and we say that their hesitancy is related to the incident detailed in John 6. So John 6 tells the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And after he fed them, this crowd of people followed Jesus and they wanted nothing to do with Jesus. They only wanted him to make more bread. And Jesus didn't respond kindly to their selfishness and their desire to have more bread. In fact, he preached one of the most abrasive confrontational sermons he ever preached in his ministry. And at the end of that sermon, most of those people walked away saying, I want nothing to do with Jesus of Nazareth. And it all started with them following Jesus because they just wanted him to make more bread. And maybe the disciples who have stuck it out and hung around to this point remember Jesus got pretty mad when those people just asked for bread last time. So maybe they're just a little bit hesitant to ask, or maybe they're dense. You take your pick of the two options. But those two miracles form the background of the passage that we're looking at this morning, where Jesus talks to some Pharisees, and then he gets in a boat with the disciples, and they have a conversation about leaven and bread. So here's the big idea of this passage. Jesus calls his people to be people of faith and people of truth. If you claim the name of Jesus Christ, you are expected to be a person of faith. You walk by faith, not by sight. And if you claim the name of Jesus Christ, you claim to follow Jesus, you are a person who has committed your life to the truth, not to what's popular at the moment. Not to what will give you advancement in life in any given situation, but to the truth of the gospel. Christian people must be people of faith and people of the truth. So, let's read this passage. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 11. 
we read this. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand that's the word of God let's pray together father we've gathered together this morning as your people we gather around your word we're thankful for the opportunity to worship we're thankful for the scriptures for the gospel of Mark and for these stories about the life of Jesus the gospel of Mark has many exciting stories this one is not a thrilling story, but I believe it's an important story. And so, Father, this morning I pray that you would help us to understand. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're just going to jump in. And the question that we want to ask is this. What do we need to know? What do we need to be aware of as we walk away from this passage if we want to be people of faith and people of truth. What are the lessons? There are at least three that we need to take away from this passage if we're going to be people of faith and people of truth. The first lesson is this. Faith in Jesus is not dependent on signs. It's not dependent on signs. That's how this passage begins. If you go back to verse 11, the Pharisees come and they want a sign. Now, not all of our Sunday morning Sunday school Bible study classes use the gospel project, but our children do and our youth and our college and most of our adult classes do. If you've been going through the gospel project, we're in the book of Numbers right now. And each and every week, the Hebrew people grumble and complain against Moses and against the Lord. These were people who saw the most amazing miracles ever. They saw the signs that Moses was able to perform in the presence of Pharaoh. They witnessed the ten plagues crippling the world superpower of Egypt. They lived through the Passover when their children were spared and the Egyptian children were not. They walked through the Red Sea with the cloud behind them 
And they marched into the wilderness with this pillar of fire by night and pillar of cloud by day. God fed them with bread from heaven, with quail from heaven, with water from a rock. They stood at the foot of Mount Sinai while the mountain trembled and shook with lightning and thunder as the Lord descended to meet with Moses. And yet over and over and over again, having seen all of these amazing miracles, these signs, their hearts were hard and their necks were stiff. Beware of the temptation to think If I could only see this sign or have this experience or feel this thing, then my faith would change. That's not what faith is. Faith is holding on to what you have not seen or what you may not feel in any given moment. It is not dependent on signs. Verse 11, the Pharisees show up. Outwardly, they're asking for a sign which you understand because we've talked about the context, is preposterous. Jesus has just performed two miracles in the presence of tens of thousands of people. If they had any question about the power and the ability of Jesus, there were literally tens of thousands of people available on the north and the east side of the Sea of Galilee who could testify to who Jesus was and what he did in providing these meals but they're really not there for the sign. They're really there to argue. That's what Mark says. The Pharisees show up and they want to argue with Jesus. They want to test Jesus. Now, I think this goes without saying, but for the sake of clarity, I just want you to note that Jesus sighs deeply in his spirit. Parents, you can relate to this. You have this same conversation with your kids for the hundredth time and you just, he sighs, he says no, and then he walks away. This is the wisdom of Kenny Rogers. You got to know when to hold them and you got to know when to fold them and you got to know when to just walk away. And Jesus doesn't stay to argue. That's what they want to do. They want to argue. They want to test Jesus. And he simply says no, and he sighs deeply in his spirit. He's grieved, and he walks away. Understand this. It is not fitting for the creature to test the creator. It is not fitting for the creature, small c, to put the creator, big C, to the test. Now some of you who are are biblically minded say, what about Gideon? Gideon tested the Lord. He laid out this fleece as sort of a a bellwether to decide what he should do or not do. And people talk about that all the time. I'm laying out a fleece. I'm sort of putting this thing out there for God to give me a, a sign or direction. What I would say about Gideon is I would caution you about imitating anybody in the book of Judges. It's a train wreck of a book. So I would just be very careful about imitating what anyone in the book of Judges does. Some of you say, well, 
Have you ever read the book of Malachi, preacher? I have read the book of Malachi. And I'm aware that Malachi rebukes the people for a lack of giving, a lack of tithing, and that God, through Malachi, says to the people, why don't you just go ahead and tithe, bring the full amount of your offering to the Lord and put him to the test and see if you don't have enough to feed your family. I've read Malachi, but I also know that in Malachi, that's the Lord's initiative in setting that before his people. And I know, we talked about the temptation of Jesus just a few weeks ago, that when Jesus was tempted, he quoted Deuteronomy 6.16 that says, do not put the Lord your God to the test it is not the place of the creature to test the creator now guess what it is the place of the creator to test his creatures and God does that throughout the scriptures he tests people he doesn't tempt them but he tests them to see what's in their hearts usually they fail the test but it's not your place it's not my place to put God to the test It's not our place to come to Jesus and say, I need you to do one more miracle. I need you to do one more miracle. I need to see this thing. That's not what faith is. Christian people do this. They expect God to function like a magic eight ball where they can ask him a question, shake it up, and then get an immediate answer, immediate direction for life. God does not exist to be your magic eight ball or mine. Non-Christian people do this. I've heard atheist college professors, I've seen atheists in debate stand on a stage, stand in front of an audience, and put God to the test and say, God, if you're real, strike me down right now, which is a foolish thing to say. But it in no way, shape, or form proves anything about the existence or the non-existence of God. It is not the place of the creature to test the creator. We're called to be people of faith. Secondly, here's a second lesson. The truth has always been attacked and will always be attacked. Has always been attacked, will always be attacked. You remember when we read the Gospels, we've talked about this several times now. One of the things that will help you in study is to read the Gospels vertically So we're in Mark, you read Mark all the way from the beginning all the way to the end. The end helps you make sense of the beginning and the beginning helps you make sense of the end. So you read all the way through Mark. You also read horizontally. So you come to this story in Mark and you say, hey, does Matthew have this? Does Luke have this? Does John have this? Are there any other insights I can gain from reading sideways across the Gospels? And when you do that, you'll find that there's not just two groups who are mentioned here, but there's three. As you read in Mark, Jesus warns the disciples about the Pharisees and Herod. As you read the parallel account, you'll find that Jesus includes another group, the Sadducees. So I just want to talk about these groups that Jesus is warning them about. He says, beware of the leaven." of the Pharisees and Herod, the Herodians, and the Sadducees. The disciples say, is he mad that we only have one loaf of bread? There's the dense side of the disciples. Jesus isn't talking about how much bread they have or don't have. He's talking about the teaching of these groups, and he's saying you need to beware of the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees. So let me just say a quick word 
about each of these groups. The Pharisees, they were conservative legalists. I know that you've been trained to read the New Testament and to see these guys as the bad guys. Like when you read Pharisee, your brain says, boo, hiss, bad guys. But I want to just say this. If you could go back in time, you'd like these guys. I promise you'd like them. They did not like big government. They'd fit in in West Texas. They stood for family values when other people didn't. And they were willing to say out loud what they stood for. They loved studying the Bible. If you want to have a Bible study, the Pharisees are in. They love having Bible studies. If you could go back, you would like them. You would say, hey, we're kindred spirits, you and I. And then they'd say, I'm a Pharisee. And you'd say, oh my goodness. I read what Jesus said to you in the Gospel of Matthew. He pronounced seven woes on the Pharisees. He did not say, woe to you for your Bible studies. He did not say, woe to you for your political views. He did not say, woe to you for your, your traditional family values. He said, woe to you, you're hypocrites. You don't practice what you preach. And you tie up heavy burdens and you place them on the backs of other people expecting them to do what not even you can do. Woe to the Pharisees. Second group is the Herodians. They were skeptical politicians. Skeptical politicians. Mark mentions Herod. Herod was a compromised figure because he was complicit in Roman rule over Judea and Galilee. So he was sort of viewed as a, a traitor to his own people, just doing whatever the Romans wanted him to do. Herod and the Herodians hated the Pharisees. They hated each other. It, the feeling was mutual. There was no love loss. However, they had a common enemy, and his name was Jesus of Nazareth. And having a common enemy can bring two otherwise hostile groups together. And that's what happened with these guys. If you look at Mark 12, you'll find that it was the Herodians who show up at the end of Jesus' life. And they're working with the Pharisees and they're working with the Sadducees. And they try to trick Jesus with a question about taxes. Leave it to the politicians to try to trick Jesus with a question about taxes. That's exactly what they did in Mark 12. The last group, the Sadducees. They were liberal pragmatists. Liberal pragmatists. And when I say liberal, I mean theologically liberal. The Sadducees had sold their soul to Rome, and the way that they sold their soul to Rome is that they paid Rome for the right to control the temple. Rome was the big dog. Rome called the shots. And the Sadducees said, look, we're a small group. We don't have as many as the Pharisees. We're not as well connected as the Herodians. So we're going to take our money. We have a lot of it. And we're going to pay the Romans for the right to run the temple. All of the high priests of this era were Sadducees. These guys believed almost none of the Old Testament. They literally ripped most of it out. They didn't believe the scriptures were the word of God. Just selective books. They did not believe in any miracles. They did not believe there was life after death. They did not believe in heaven. They just thought you live and then you die and that's it. 
All they cared about was the here and now. And in the here and now, they wanted to make money. And so they ran a racket, an illegal racket at the temple with permission from Rome, which is why when Jesus shows up in the temple and starts flipping over tables and running people out, he's messing with their business model. And they're furious. Jesus says, beware of the leaven. He's not talking about bread. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, the Herodians, and in the parallel passage, the Sadducees. So what do we do with that? Maybe we need a sign out front that says, no Pharisees allowed. Herodians need not apply. Sadducees, go across the street. We don't have a lot of those people running around today. But this is one of the things that this passage reminds us of. It's why it's so timely today. The truth has always been attacked, and it will always be attacked. In large measure, this is the story of church history. It's people saying, this is what the Bible says. And then every now and then, someone pops up and says something completely out of line. Something completely not true, something completely unbiblical, and the church has to say, wait a minute. We don't believe that. We believe this. And it happens over and over and over and over again. So let's just pose this question. How is the truth under attack today? How much time do you have? Can you stay through lunch, dinner? Can you take vacation this week? Okay, let's boil it down to six answers, six things that you need to be aware of. How is the truth under attack today? Number one, epistemology. That's the question of how do we know? It's an important issue. And there are lots of secular people in the world today who attack the truth and they say, look, there is no God Science proves we don't need God. Since there is no God, the only things that you can know are things that you observe with your own two eyes. And they use this word science like a hammer to beat people over the head. You're not anti-science, are you? Well, who wants to say, yes, I'm anti-science? Nobody wants to say that. They're just bludgeoning people with it. Christian people are not opposed to science, but Christian people have faith and what they can't see. We're not just people of the truth, we're people of faith. And Christian people say there is a God and he has spoken to us. And yes, we can learn things about the world through observation, but we can also learn things that are true from the scriptures. Our world is filled not just with secular people, but with people that you could call postmodern people. These folks tell you There's no point in you even talking about truth as a category. There is no truth. There's just perspectives. There's just opinions. And you have yours and I have mine and we can argue and arm wrestle and have conflict over who is the strongest and whose opinion will win the day. But there is no absolute standard of objective truth. And as Christian people, we just disagree with that. There are some things that are true. There are some things that are objectively true. We know them because of science, and there are some things that are objectively true. We know them because we read them in the Word of God. Truth is under attack in this way. Beware the leaven of the secularists. Beware the leaven of the postmodernists. They want to attack the very concept of truth. Secondly, 
theology. This is the question of who is God? Who is God? There's lots of things we could say here. Let's just think about our context in the United States. Millions of people in the United States believe the demonic lie that God wants you to always be healthy, wealthy, and happy. That's not a fringe belief. That is a very, very common mindset in the United States of America. And we're told by many popular, prominent teachers that if you in your life experience any lack of health or wealth or happiness, the problem is your lack of faith. It's your problem. Now look, you're the 8.30 Sunday morning crowd. You know better. Folks at 11 o'clock, I'm not so sure about, but you're the 8.30 crowd. You guys know, you say, that's crazy talk. That's crazy. It is crazy. You know, there's a lot of Americans, in addition to those who believe the prosperity nonsense, who hold to what you might call prosperity light. Not the full-fledged prosperity gospel, just prosperity light. They don't expect millions and mansions and Maseratis. They just expect everything to be okay and to go well. And when it doesn't, who do they get mad at? They get mad at God. They blame God. This is your fault. They're operating out of an American mindset that God owes us some baseline level of comfort or security. He doesn't owe us either of those things. They're operating out of the therapeutic mindset that dominates our culture today that says God exists just to make you feel good about things. It's not why he exists. Prosperity, prosperity light, it all boils down to a unbiblical, a lie, an untrue view of who God is. It's a problem of theology. Third, anthropology. This is a big one. Who are we? This is under attack today on every front, every day, all day, on the news, in culture, university campuses, workplaces, everywhere you go, this is under attack. You have to beware of the leaven of those who have unbiblical anthropology. Look, we sang a song a minute ago, and there was a line in the song where we said, we, we know that we have worth and that we're unworthy. We have worth and we're unworthy. We have worth because we're created in God's image. We're unworthy of any good thing from God because we are sinful, fallen people. You have to hold both of those things together as you think about who we are as human beings. And the world that you live in today says both of those things are lies. You are not made in God's image, we're told. Human life is not valuable or precious or special. We are just evolved, advanced animals who find ourselves at the top of the food chain because of our developed brains and opposable thumbs. It's all you are. And yet at the same time, we are told that we are basically good people. We're good. In the core of who we are, we are good people. 
we're told that whatever desire or instinct we find in our heart, we are free, and not just free, obligated to live out. And no one can tell us who we are or who we're not. The world is confused about this question of anthropology. Who are we as human beings? It's under attack. You have got to beware of the leaven of those who deny that human beings are created in the image of God and who deny that we are sinful people, who insist that we are free to define ourselves however we want to define ourselves. None of those things are true. None of those things are true. Fourthly, soteriology. This is the question of how can we be saved? There's nothing new under the sun. All the same answers have been around for millennia. There's plenty of people who say the way that you're saved is by your good works, some moral thing you do, some spiritual thing you do, some religious thing you do. You do this thing, then you get in. You also live in a place today where pluralism is popular. Pluralism, theologically defined, means all religions are equally valid. So all you have to do is pick one and run with it. They all lead up the same mountain. We're all going to get up there in the end. So just pick one. Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Shintoism. Doesn't matter. Just pick one. We'll meet you at the top. You also live in a world that leans heavily towards universalism, which is just the idea that you don't even need to pick a religion because we're all going to go to heaven anyways. I think this is the default operating system for most Americans, and I say that because I've been to a lot of funerals. And the working assumption for most Americans is you live, you die, you go to a better place. Automatic. No questions asked. Proceed directly to go and collect your $200. Only the Bible says it's not automatic because you are a sinner. And the only way that you can receive eternal life is through the grace of God, through faith in Jesus, and in no other name is salvation to be found other than the name of Jesus Christ. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Fifth, ecclesiology. It's the question of what is church. It's not like we weren't confused about this a couple of years ago, but COVID has changed this. COVID has created more confusion for people all over the world. We live in the West. We have access to technology. We have access to cameras. We have access to streaming equipment. All wonderful things that we should use for the glory of God. All good things. We didn't live stream our services Pre-COVID, we started during COVID and we've continued to do it on this side of COVID. We plan to continue doing that. We think there's legitimate times where people can connect with us through streaming. When you're home sick, you can connect with us online. If you're home uh, caretaking for somebody else who is sick and you can't leave them, you can connect with us online. When you're traveling, you're able to stay connected with what's happening here at your home church. If you work a, a shift at the hospital late or early on a Saturday or a Sunday or if you're out called out to the oil field for an emergency, we understand there's, there's instances where people can connect with us online. There's value in that. We have homebound people who are more connected to our church in a sense than they've been in the past. But let's be really clear. The word church 
literally means congregation or assembly. Because the people of God congregate and assemble. It's not an optional part of what it means to be part of a church. Congregating with God's people and assembling with God's people. And there's a lot of confusion today. On this side of COVID, people who say, well, you know, I watched online, I caught the podcast, all great things. But that's not what church is fundamentally, and it's under attack. Lastly, Christology, who is Jesus? I thought about giving you some poll numbers. Anybody can give poll numbers. Anybody can make up poll numbers. Polls pretty consistently show that Americans are favorable toward Jesus. If you just say Jesus, thumbs up or down, most Americans are a thumb up, thumbs up. Polls also consistently show that Americans have absolutely no idea what the Bible says about Jesus. In fact, most reputable polls today show that a statistical majority of Americans, and yes, that includes church-going Americans, a statistical majority of Americans believe false, unbiblical, heretical things about who Jesus is. Thumbs up. I'm all for Jesus. But I have no idea what the Bible says about him. The truth about Jesus is under attack, which brings us to this last lesson. Faith must be rooted in the truth about Jesus. He's the center. He's the, the center. He's the heart of our faith. He's bringing our big idea full circle. We're supposed to be people of faith. We're supposed to be people of truth. And your faith must be rooted in the truth about Jesus. I want you to think about this story. We took a little excursus to think about modern day versions of Pharisees and Herodians and Sadducees. But back to this story. Jesus says, beware of the leaven of these false teachers. And they, why didn't you bring the bread? You were supposed to get, there were seven baskets. Why didn't you get it? They start arguing about the bread and how much they have. We only have one loaf. And Jesus cuts them off because they're completely out in left field. And Jesus says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why are you talking about bread? Look what he says in verse 17. Did you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes and you can't see? Do you have ears and you can't hear? Do you not remember? Look at verse 19. The five loaves for the 5,000. How much was left over? They say 12. Jesus, in verse 20, the seven loaves for the 4,000. How much was left over? They say seven. And then Jesus asked them this question. Do you not yet understand? You know, I think they understood about the bread. They served it. I mean, they literally carried it in their hands. They ate it. They were part of the crowd that was satisfied with both of those meals. And they helped gather up the leftovers into 12 baskets the first time and seven baskets the second time. I think they got the bread part. I don't think they quite understood at this point who it was that gave them the bread. You know, in the Old Testament, it was the Lord God who gave Israel bread. 
And now it's Jesus of Nazareth who is miraculously providing bread for his people. This was God come to dwell with his people. Emmanuel, God with us. He wasn't going to dwell in a temple. He wasn't going to dwell in a tabernacle. He was dwelling as a human being. Truly God. Truly man. God come to live among us so that he could die for us. And this is where the disciples are just off at this point. They're not there yet. They get there. They get there, but they're not there yet. And if you keep reading after our passage, you'll see that Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. It seems like the light bulb has gone off. This is a good thing. And then when Jesus says, yes, I'm the Christ and I'm going to die for you, Peter says, you're not going to die? To which we circle back to the question in verse 21. Do you not yet understand? My prayer for you this morning is that you understand the truth about Jesus. Is that you understand that he is the center of our faith. That there is objective truth about him that you've got to make a decision about. That you understand that he is truly God, truly man who came to give his life on the cross for sinners. That you look to him as the source of life, the source of salvation that you would never otherwise be able to obtain on your own. That you understand these truths. That you have faith in Jesus. You believe in Jesus. You confess your sin to God and you put your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. My prayer for you is that as we wrestle with this question in verse 21, do you not yet understand that you say, yes, I understand. And I believe as a person of faith the truth about Jesus.